Welcome to the X Overland Podcast. At X Overland, we're committed to living a life of adventure and to sharing what we learn in the hopes of inspiring and empowering others to boldly explore the world. Join the conversation as we sit down to share stories of overland travel and vehicle-based adventure with a broad range of compelling guests from around the globe. We all know it's better to adventure with your buddies. With Onyx Off-Road's folder sharing feature, planning and sharing has been made even simpler. Go ahead and be the trip leader because folding... Go ahead and be the trip leader because folder sharing lets you organize your custom map content your way so you can easily coordinate adventure plans or share a route post-trip. You can add routes, waypoints, tracks, and map markups to your custom folders to keep your adventures organized and your maps clutter-free. Now you and your group can go farther with Onyx Off-Road. Welcome back to the X Overland Podcast, everybody. Uh, Leah and I are hosting today, and we are so excited about the guests we have. They are zooming in, uh, so to speak, all the way from... Cuenca, Ecuador. Cuenca, Ecuador. The third, the third largest city in Ecuador, yes. Okay, and that is that is the literal truth. That is where they're sitting right now. So connectivity is working, and they were able to get on the podcast, and that is Eric and Brittany Highland of Hourless Life. Welcome, you two. Welcome, guys. Thank you, guys. Great to be here. And you isn't all... technology so great that we can like do this from so far away? It's amazing. It's amazing. It really is. I'm so grateful for this, and I'm sure you know listeners and viewers on the network will feel the same way. Um, it's it's just there's so much. You know, I was preparing for this podcast and in reviewing your content, and I was looking at your your recap piece from 2022. And um, I just kept adding to the list of topics that I wanted to talk to you all about. It's endless. And uh, there's no way we're going to get to all of them tonight. But, you know, hopefully we can get you back on the podcast as a serial guest and we can eventually get to all those topics because I know you guys are about sharing what you do with people so they can learn and be inspired. Absolutely. Yes. So we would love to share all of our life experiences and all the stories that happen every day. Some of them we can't believe ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> that was that's a sense I get from your content. The content, the authenticity is just, you know, so powerful. And so uh I I am really curious, right? I think you you you've been full time overlanding now for almost 10 years. How did you get to where you're at like how did this happen what is what is the backstory just to begin with for people who don't know wow it is a long story jimmy um the short version is i spent 20 years in the military uh serving our country and when i retired i ended up um getting married to Brittany, and we moved to seattle where i worked for the king county sheriff's office and then i left there because i got a job offer in texas in Austin uh, for Texas DPS, another law enforcement agency. And then we decided we wanted to spend more time together. And by this time I had a six figure job in Austin, Texas. It was the height of my professional career and I resigned, I, I quit. And we went from making six figures to no figures literally overnight with this dream, with this dream of spending time together, more time together. And so we created a small little boutique marketing agency for social media marketing agency. Um, 
and we were doing mom and pop shops. You know, sometimes we'd even do stuff for free just to get referrals uh, from other people so that we could make ends meet. We were struggling like financially. It was it was hard. So the goal of leaving the DPS job wasn't necessarily to go overlanding. It was literally just to be no, more time as a family. We we that wasn't on the radar. Was no, at that point, it had just been a multi-year dream of working together, but we kept putting it off and putting it off because it was risky and we don't have savings. And it, there's so many reasons that we could come up with not to do it. But things worked out with Eric's job where he did not feel comfortable there anymore. And so we leapt off. It was spontaneous. We didn't plan it. We didn't really want it. <laughs> but when it happened, we looked at each other and we we're like, this is the moment. That's it. We've been talking we're done. about it for years. Yeah. Let's finally make this happen. But we we weren't ready. So we didn't have the savings and we didn't have all these things in place that maybe okay. we wanted to begin self-employment. And so instead what we did as we calculated our monthly expenses, which were fortunately fairly low at the time. And we told each other, I think we set a two week goal. And we were like, in two weeks time, we have to have earned this much money or we need to go out and get quote unquote real jobs again. Wow. And okay. we were hustling. We were in Austin, Texas, and it was during South by Southwest. And so we were like getting, this is pre-Uber, but we were doing all these gig jobs through apps that existed at that time. And I don't know, I went out and got a childcare job a couple of days a week and we were doing anything that we could just to hit that goal. To give you an idea, we were so desperate at that time out of necessity and out of choice, right? Like I think people think, well, like they've got to be extremely wealthy. They're driving around the world, you know? It's like, no, 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 you need to know where we come from, right? I mean, we we were putting up posters for like bands and stuff. We were, I was delivering umbrellas to people because it started raining at the festival and somebody was going to pay me five bucks to go to Walmart, pick up an umbrella and deliver it to them at this address. And so wow. we were doing whatever it took, but here's the rub. We took that tiny little social media marketing company and it grew and we, we devoted ourselves to it. And 10 years later, we're handling fortune 500 companies social media from this little marketing agency. And we're making more money than I was making when no. I had retired uh, from my six-figure job. But here's the problem. The more successful we became, the less time we spent together. And because of that, it wasn't what we initially started this for. Right. And by this time, of course, overlanding had become a thing in our lives and we decided we wanted to uh, drive around the world. So in 2020, we sold everything. We burned it all down, as we call it. We we sold all our companies, handed everything off, and built Dauntless, our 2021 Jeep Gladiator, and started driving around the world. Uh, so that's where we're at now. But it was not an easy process. We have a, a full video, I think it's like 40 minutes long, on our YouTube channel called The Long Game, which describes this entire story in great detail. Mm. Okay. So we'll I'm going to throw in more we'll detail about all this, like when you were making these big changes and burning things down and starting your overlanding world. How old was Caspian? You have a you have a son who's on this journey with you. You're raising him <laughs> on the journey. So yeah. where how does he factor in like with this story? So Caspian was born at the end of 2016, and he was born to the road. Yeah. We're already traveling full time, and it's been almost three years that Eric and I had been traveling full time. 
And so we were just doing our best. Like we were still trying to build all our business projects. We were working 40 hour weeks with no support system on the road. And so I was waking up at 4.30 a.m. in the morning just to get my work done before he woke up. And that was a rough time uh, as he was there for the whole thing. But when we say that he was born to the road, Caspian is really the star of the show. I want you to understand he went from the birthing room of the hospital to our Jeep. This kid has never lived in a house. Right. Ever. That's incredible. Somewhere, some footage. Like this. I kind of remember watching that at some point before I was even doing the podcast. And I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is like a I mean, I, level I have, of overlanding. I have two small kids. My uh, my son is probably close to the same age, uh, 2016 as well. And it is mind-blowing to me to think that you like birth him in a hospital and put him in the Jeep and then like never went home. Like that, I remember our first drive in the car and being like, we just have to go across town. We'll be okay. And then you guys are just like, yeah, we're, we're, we're leaving now. Well, to put this in perspective, by the time Caspian was five, he had already spent one night in every single one of the lower 48 United States. He had been to 37 of the 63 national parks. He had made three international overlanding trips into Mexico, and he was starting this global journey by the time he was five. I mean, he was starting it, but you guys are doing this as a family. And I like I think of this as a unit. Like he, he, uh, he he's doing that because you guys are creating this environment. I think that's a whole a whole other conversation that we can talk about is how <laughs> kids are part of the unit and like what we provide and the way that we um craft their an environment is is how they rise up and that's incredible what an incredible kid you have and the rest of us over here are biting our fingernails like can we camp for two nights <laughs> does that work <laughs> i i can relate with, with what leah said I, my daughter now just turned 18 so she's heading out on her own adventures but you know i raised her pretty much camping and fishing around montana and so you know she fly fishes and runs rivers and camps but it's like like Leah saying, you know, it's one that was a big deal. We went on our first fishing camp up the canyon yeah. uh, when she was five or whatever it was, right? And it's like Caspian, man. I mean, from day one is is traveling and growing up, you know, with that travel experience on the daily. May it's awesome. I I have to I have to ask like how like what is your your mindset and your philosophy on parenting from the road? And um, I feel like it's just so different from like the mom groups that I'm in and the, and you know, with the blackout curtains and the pack and plays and the things that we, we feel like we need. And here you guys are doing it in such a small confined space and, and thriving. Um, how do you feel about that? Yeah. I, I, I mean, high parenting. five. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I think our parenting philosophy is very thorough and intentional and it has to be because what we're doing is so non-traditional and we get questions all the time that we've been forced to explain uh, why we're doing what we're doing. I think that a big piece from the very beginning was we are not going to get off the road because we're having a child, which a lot of people just expected us to settle down and get the house when I announced that I was pregnant. But we already knew that we were not going to do that. And this whole idea of, well, Caspian's along for the adventure and and we don't want to and we don't need to change this travel lifestyle that we've come to love because we believe that it's going to grow him the way that it's growing us. 
And to your point about all the stuff, that is definitely a thing, especially as a new mom. You just want to give your baby the best life that he or she can have. And society is telling you that you need all these things to do that. Um, like a really fancy changing table and a dehumidifier and meanwhile we're we're wild camping and we have like a hundred watt solar panel so we can power a dehumidifier right Um, and just going through that process not only for ourselves which we have to have to learn to pare down and realize what we needed but then to do it for your tiny human too yes figure out what is this person well, it was so funny because you, you think about little things. We had this little, this I don't know that you guys are going to be interested in this, but maybe you'll edit this out. We had this little turtle potty, <laughs> if you will. Uh-huh. I will never forget. We are in Mexico, like deep in the interior of Mexico. And Caspian's like, I need to go potty, right? So we stop the Jeep. We open the door. We get out the turtle potty, which is small, right? We set it on the side of the road and there's like semi trucks just flying by on this road. And Caspian's just sitting there squatting down, doing his business. And we're just looking at him and we're just cracking up. This is like, this is how we're potty training our son. But he has like zero fear now, like, you know, whatever. So it's just kind of funny. Go potty anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good time. Oh, absolutely. That is the best potty training story I think I've ever heard, Rhea. It's it's wild no matter where you do it. Let me just throw that out there. Potty training is not the thing of heart. Oh, man. We could talk about all that stuff forever, right? Like, it's like... Going from uh, potty training, you know, that's a big jump just to be potty trained, like from the backpack to toddlerdom to potty trained five-year-old is like uh, those parenting thresholds. So I guess what I'm wondering, you two, is how, like, did you get cultural pushback from family, friends? Like, you know, what are you guys doing? That's crazy. Your your kid just born. Uh, You know, did you have to, with your philosophy and being intentional, you know, push back against some of that? Or was there support? Uh, what did that look like? We have been fortunate to have a really supportive base community. And so there wasn't any pushback when we were having Caspian. Uh, we're both the children of immigrants. So Eric's mom immigrated from Mexico and my parents immigrated from Canada. And they're all travelers. And so in a way, this is all their fault and they can't say anything about it. <laughs> but uh, so that wasn't so hard. The The hard one was going into Mexico for the first time. And Caspian was at the end of one turning two. And I don't think we have ever got nastier comments from strangers online than we did during that time. And mostly Eric was getting it. Like, how could you take your wife and your tiny child into this terrible country? All these bad things are going to happen to them. And I had sleepless nights where I was wondering, am I putting my child at risk to pursue my dream? And there's so much fear of the unknown. And it's so hard to filter through what's true and what's not when you've never done it before. And what we had to learn to do was to respond to social media comments saying, well, thank you. How many times have you been to Mexico? Yeah, 9.5 times out of 10, we would never hear from them again. So they were people who had literally never been to Mexico, but had a lot to say about what it was like there. Well, and let me interject too. Uh, So we did get that from our social media. People were just like, you know, and I actually sheltered Brittany from the worst of the worst comments. She never even saw those. 
Um, but there were a lot of things that came in basically just saying we were crazy or I was stupid or, you know, fill in the blank uh, and not so many nice words. But here's what actually happens. And I want to be very clear about this. If something bad happens to an American citizen traveling through Mexico, it splashes all over the U.S. news and everybody hears about it and they get their 15 minutes of fame. Okay. And then Americans see that and they see Mexico as a bad country or a dangerous country. Like all of Mexico is now bad or dangerous. They're not looking at the bad actor that committed the crime or the offense against the people. They're looking at the entire country as a danger zone. Now, in Boulder, Colorado, there was a tragic shooting that took place in a supermarket where I believe 13 or 17 people died. We don't ever tell people don't go to Boulder, Colorado. We don't tell people Colorado is dangerous. We don't tell people don't go grocery shopping in, in, in Boulder. Like that's just not something we say. We say there was a lone gunman or a gunman and this was an atrocity that happened, but we don't generalize a population or a region of the United States. We just don't do that. But that's not how we treat these foreign countries. And th here's the reality. There are bad actors in every country in this world, including the United States. And there are dangerous and hot spots in every country, just like there are in the United States. And yet somehow we tend to categorize anything outside of our country and we generalize the entire country rather than focus on the bad actor. And I, I'm just sick of it because the people down here are hospitable. They're kind, they're giving, and they're doing the best they can for their families. They, they go to school, they, they work hard, they, you know, go grocery shopping and do their laundry, just like we do back home. Uh, they just do it differently. So I think it, it, we need to stop generalizing countries. Do you think that's maybe like a defense mechanism for Americans to make sure that they feel safe in their own country? Like it's not so much that they really truly believe that Mexico is unsafe. It's that they don't want to feel unsafe in their country when that happens. Ooh. So then they spin it. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. We've just had this conversation so many times with people that it just seems yeah. like a very deep seated and believed fear mm -hmm. yeah. for people. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't think they stop. That means that everybody that I know. No. I think it's an easy But everybody that I know who has traveled, I was just saying everybody that I know that has traveled extensively in Mexico or anywhere south of the United States has never said anything other than what you are saying, that it is a hospitable country. It is warm. It is friendly. It It is they've never felt un so you talk to the real travelers and they say go you know and you and you do your traveling in the way that makes you feel safe and that's your personal decision yeah absolutely and we totally have best practices that we follow for security so we understand that we're not in a bubble and we're at risk just like everybody is every day never knowing what could happen and our number one rule is to never drive at night. And that is a hard and fast rule for us. And it is not just because of bad actors. It's more because of the road conditions. It's because of the potholes that can take out your axle and the topes, the speed bumps that are unmarked. It's because of the goats, pigs, roosters, and children in the roads. And it's because you can round a mountain curve and the road is missing because of a landslide. And that's happened to us in daylight. And so we would never want to drive those roads after dark. And then we always try to get to camp by 3 p.m. 
And that way, if it's not what we thought it was going to be, we're not comfortable or we just don't like it, we have time before the sun goes down to find another camp. So smart. Well, I would just, um, you know, to, to validate everything, you know, Eric, that you were saying, um, it just, it just makes so much sense to me as far as like the kind of things that are happening in the United States now, almost on a weekly basis, you could say, you know, with mass shootings and that type of thing. Yeah. We don't encourage people not to go to the grocery store anymore or, you know, go to the movie theater or wherever the last mass shooting took place, you know, still go to school, all those things. But you have one isolated incident in a place like Mexico. Yeah. And they're writing off an entire population, entire country, all the different states within the country, right? When you think of how, how much variety there is in the U.S. with the states we live in, how things change with what state you go to, what city you go to. Same, same kind of thing in Mexico, right? Like with places and regions. Well, you know, and Jimmy, I'll tell you, this is something, and it, honestly, it might make me are us your least popular guest on the EXO podcast ever. Um, but I'm going to say something that, that resonates true. I'm going to give you an example. We pull into Colombia, the country of Colombia in South America, and we're driving through and we'll stop at this little business or this restaurant. And these Colombians, they roll out the red carpet for us. They open the gates to their, their business or their restaurant. And they're like, please come and camp here. And then they'll leave to go home, but they'll unlock their business so that we can use the shower and the bathroom inside. And they leave us there by ourselves, having met us that afternoon, right? And we're Americans with Texas plates. And the United States and Colombia have a long, sordid history. Like, there's no reason that the, these Colombian people should trust these Americans that have just pulled into their establishment, but they literally roll out the red carpet. I'm not going to go into detail, but I will tell you this. How do you think the average business in the United States would treat that Colombian family if that Colombian family rolled into their business in the United States, met them that afternoon and said, hey, we're just traveling through. Is it okay if we like camp here or park here tonight? What do you think the response would be from the, uh, the and I'm generalizing, but what do you think the response would be? from the general population of the United States, do you think they'd be like, sure, come on in. We'll leave the door open for you. There's a there's a bathroom and a shower. You guys can stay here as long as you want. We're not going to charge you anything. It's just great to have you. Yep. Yep. I, I That's a, a point made. Um, and I, you know, without going too far into the weeds of, of our cultural problems in this country, which I think are immense, um, you know, it speaks to something else too that I'm thinking about that, that you all are experiencing you know, on the daily, uh, and that is like these massive cultural differences um, between the United States and, and what you're familiar with there and with the places you're traveling. Um, you know, and in some cases, there are things maybe that you enjoy more about the United States and there are other things that you don't. But like you are, you're so immersed in the cultures you're traveling in. You're there for so long that I get the feeling like you're experiencing those cultures in a way that changes you forever. Like it's impossible to go back to being the person you were when you rolled across that Mexican border as a family to start overlanding. Yeah. Absolutely. And you're, you're totally right, Jimmy. There are things that we love about the United States that are so comfortable, that are stable there in a way that we don't experience down here. 
But there are also beautiful things down here that we have taken away and that have changed us forever that we even found ourselves implementing when we visited the United States for the first time in 18 months earlier this year. One thing is that in Latin America, you begin every interaction with somebody with a greeting. And so you say the appropriate buenos dias, buenas tardes, buenas noches. And you do that before you say anything else. It doesn't matter whether it's just a shopkeeper and you just need to buy a water or whether it's a doctor's office. And and it's like you're you're building this human connection right away. Whereas in the United States, and I'm not even saying this is good or bad, it just is the way it is, but it's very common to just go into the convenience store and say, where's the bread? <laughs> and, you know, they tell you and then you just, you walk in and it's it's just very transactional. You're just getting it done, get out, get in. And, and here there's just a, a huge human connection and you see it just drop excuse me, you see it just driving through towns mm-hmm. wherever you are that people are just out there sitting on stoops, they're gathering at the coffee cart in the morning and sharing a coffee together. And it's very beautiful to witness. And it's a completely different change of pace as well. In the United States, it's go, go, go all the time. And I remember coming back from Mexico for the first time and just noticing that stark contrast and thinking our way of life here in the U.S., including myself, this is exhausting. And I could not wait to get back to Mexico where you don't move that fast, which also means you wait for everything five times longer. And then that's the other side to it. Uh, Well, I'm going back around to, you know, we were talking about just the basics of security. And and a thought that occurred to me is uh, you you all were saying you follow best practices and, and started to list them off. And the first thing I thought of was you probably do the same thing in the United States, too in terms of, you know, selecting a campsite and what time of day am I traveling and where am I and just, you know, situational awareness and all those kind of normal things. And you were also mentioning things about global travel and travel through Central America in this case um, that really resonated with things I've heard Scott Brady talk about, uh, adventure motorcyclists who spent a lot of time traveling through Central Amer- America. And that's things like, yeah, you know, you don't really need to worry about having a super fast, powerful adventure motorcycle or vehicle because around any corner it could be a herd of goats or the road is just gone. And I know like Brady was saying, you know, my his rule of thumb is he only goes as fast as he can see with his eyes, period. Like if, if he can see or not, otherwise, you know, average speed is so much slower than the U.S. So what is that like, you know, thinking about it, just driving and traffic and travel in Central America compared to, to the U.S. Well, let me let me tell you something, Jimmy. I, mean, I got two stories to tell you. We were in Honduras. We were coming back from the Copan ruins, which is these fantastic ruins in, in Honduras, uh, pyramids and the whole nine yards. And we were coming back and we're on this mountain road. And about the fastest you go anywhere here in Latin America is about 40 kilometers an hour. Uh, or 40 miles an hour, I should say, is like the top speed, right? So we're on this major highway and I'm coming around a corner and it's a blind corner and there's no cones, there's no flashing lights or construction signs or any kind of signal that there's a problem ahead. And I come around this corner and the road is gone. And I'm not talking about it turned into gravel. I'm turning. I'm talking about it stops and there's a direct drop off. It's gone. Like there is no road. 
it drops hundreds of feet straight down into an abyss on your side. Now it's a two lane road, right? So, and you're on a blind curve. So you have to make an immediate decision. Am I slamming on the brakes and hoping I don't slide off this into this abyss? Or do I get into the oncoming lane of this blind curve that I cannot see around the corner and pray that nobody's coming up and I'm not going to slam head on into them? And this is the kind of stuff that Brittany was talking about where there's no cone, there's no caution tape, there's no police officer or anything to tell you that it's gone. It's just not there. But all the locals know it. So they, they know, ah, you're there, you know? And now, that, and this is normal. Like, this is normal. This happens all over Latin America. Now, here's the, here's the contrast. We flew back to the United States for the first time in 554 days to speak at Overland Expo West. We go visit Brittany's brother in Denver. We pick up our other Jeep that we keep parked there, and we're driving to Seattle to see family. And we get on this interstate, and Google says, continue for 558 miles. And I was just looking at Brittany like, holy smokes, right? American police are so... Now, you guys take this for granted because you do this all the time if you're doing a long road trip across the United States. But you get out of that habit and into these places where, where we are, and that the sound of Google telling me I'm going to be on this four-lane, one-direction interstate, well-marked interstate for 558 miles without making a single like, You just go to sleep. And I can both just go to sleep. Just go to sleep. <laughs> I'm going to be good. <laughs> wow. No, you just nailed it, Leah. That was the yeah. first time I had used cruise control in like yeah. 500 days. Yeah. You know, and settle so, insane. We we take it for granted back home. Like we we expect that, right? And then if there's rush hour traffic, we complain about it. Um, but wow, what a marvel. Like the infrastructure of the United States is just phenomenal. And you, you just, it really is. You we take it for granted and you have nothing to compare it to until you come down here and then you're just like, holy smokes, like this is amazing. So yeah. Yeah, so Eric finishes a two and a half drive hour drive down here, and he's beat. Like he just needs to rest. And so I usually like on those really hard driving days, I set up camp myself, and I just tell him sit down, yeah. decompress, relax, because our entire driving day was a hundred kilometers, sixty miles, and it took us three hours. Right, and to drive. That and hard. while you're doing this, you'll get into these little tiny towns where I I, I can't make this stuff up. There's like four people on a moped, okay, a moped, four people. One of them is a woman who's breastfeeding her newborn. None of them are wearing helmets. Was that the fourth person or the fifth person? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nobody's wearing shoes. And and then you're zipping in and out of you on both sides of your vehicle and cutting in front of you. And I'm just trying to change lanes and not kill somebody. But there's like 12 of them going around you all at once. And, and yeah, it's just insanity insanity for what we're used to but they're right they're used to it this is this is their daily life so you know it's on us but we're so some a takeaway i'm wondering leah uh if not the whole family on the moped barefoot with no helmets you know swerving around you i didn't see that but the what we just experienced on the trips that we took respectively mm -hmm. and compared to the interstate and like, if is there something to be learned for what you might call domestic overlanders from what Brittany and Eric are talking about and the way of how they travel through Latin America? Well, 
in my experience, so so I just decided I'm gonna, I have two kids, I'm a single mom, and I uh, decided I'm going to do this road trip. And we left from Arizona and went up to Montana and then almost to the Canadian border. And um, I wasn't particular about doing uh, backcountry roads or anything like that. Um, we did some dirt, but a lot of interstate as well. And um, my realization in that trip, especially in the first like week, to, week to nine days or whatever, I wanted to go slower. I was like, I'm going to set the cruise control at 70, which seems really fast now that we're having this conversation. And um, But the speed limit, my goodness, the second you get into Utah, turned to 80 miles an hour. And I'm like, I don't want to go this fast. I'm on vacation. I am, I am not going this fast. And then just like you're explaining, I'm getting passed left and right by like semi-trucks and all sorts of things. Like you're going way too slow. Um, and, and it's in that I thought that was crazy. Like I was like, I'm ready to slow down, but you can't. Like you are just forced. You're shut. You're shuttled into this corridor of like you have to keep up. And for, and for safety reasons, like you probably should keep up. Um, and then my my story behind that too is I get to Montana and um, I had this window of time and you had an hour to get from um, west yellowstone to ennis for the fourth of july and in my mind i calculated it as about an hour's drive and i knew i was going to be late and i'm like surely this road is going to be too it was and it was it was a two-lane highway which is what i expected again speed limit 70 miles an hour and we're like there's a guardrail and then a lake like immediately the water right there and the cliff on one side and i am like i am late i have to drive like i'm driving like crazy um, and again, like, okay, I'm on a trip. I want to slow down, but how do you, I, it is just, um, it changes state to state is all I'm saying <laughs> here in the United the, States too. The piggyback off of what she's saying, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, lesson learned, maybe, you know, when you're on the back roads and you're, you're overlanding, so to speak within our country here within the U S you maybe learn to slow down a little bit, take your time. Um, my quick story is I was going to go to Overland Expo Pacific Northwest here and ride my adventure motorcycle from Montana to, to that location. But my goal is to take all back roads, avoid the interstate as much as possible. Well, what I found is riding a motorcycle on the back roads throughout the Northern Rockies takes a long time. Like, you know, it's what, what may have been just a couple of hours is now half a day and I'm exhausted. It's hot right? All these things. It's a much more laborious form of travel, but far more re rewarding um, than the interstate, you know, pushing to get to a destination. So I hear you all talking about travel in Latin America and it's like, yeah, you know, these back roads throughout the countryside, like you still might run into a herd of cattle in Montana and come around the corner and there's cattle drive going on um, and a lot of weird things happening in the, on the back roads. But you know, slow down, set, make, make 50 your top speed if you can and take in a little more. Okay. So that, that brings me to a question for you guys is like, like, what does an average day look like? Do you, are you traveling every day? Are you moving every day, packing up camp every day? Like what's your, what does an average day for you guys look like these days? So it is very hard to have a rhythm in this lifestyle, especially traveling with a kid because no sooner do you find something that works, then he changes and he's not the same person anymore and we have to adjust. But um, we try not to drive every day because we just find that it burns us out so quickly. And so when we're camping in the Jeep, ideally it's two days, three days, even more if it's a good spot for us and we feel comfortable and relaxed and the weather is good. Mm -hmm. And so we, you don't like to drive more than three or four hours. 
four hours is usually about what I my max for the four day. hours max on a driving day. And so that gets us wherever we're going around lunchtime. And usually we have a rest time, <laughs> family rest time during the afternoon. And Caspian hangs out inside and plays with his mic formers and listens to uh, audiobook. Eric, you just decompress usually. Yeah, now to give you an idea, when we say four hour driving day, if I said that to you guys, Lee yeah. and Jim, yeah, but 80 miles an hour road in Montana, yeah. you get real far. Four hours right? on the interstate. It's not us, right? Four hours for us is about 110, 120 miles. And, and that's a long driving day for us. Yeah. 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 That's just what I was saying. Challenges. Yeah. And then that's the time that I might write or catch up on social media stuff, do something for hourless life or my freelance writing that I need to do. And then it's time to make dinner or maybe walk to dinner if we're in a little town and we want to eat somewhere there. And we turn in pretty early because we found that in this lifestyle, our cycle is with the sun. And so we wake up with the sun and we go to sleep or to bed at least with the sun, yeah. which I think is actually a really healthy way to do life. Totally. Hourless life. That's yes. right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's beautiful. I love it. Yeah. There, there's a lot of things that you don't really realize, you know, the difference between what we do and what most overlanders do, I guess, in the United States is, you know, uh, this is long-term touring. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, mm -hmm. We don't travel to camp. We camp to travel, right? So there, mm -hmm. it's kind of a reverse. We we don't even know where we're going. We're just we're going, and we're going to end up camping somewhere because we want to continue this journey. And so, when you're living this lifestyle, it's you know when you're doing this, I should say, as a lifestyle, it's very different from being having that exciting moment where you're going to Montana from. Colorado or whatever, and you've got this destination that you're headed towards, uh, and you've only got so much time to do it in. Mm -hmm. We don't have an end date, and the only thing in front of us is the horizon. Yes. And if you were to ask me, okay, when you leave Cuenca, Ecuador, where you are now, where are you going next? My answer is south. I don't know what our next destination is specifically. I know we're headed south, and we're going to continue heading south until you can't head south anymore, and then we're going to turn around and we're going to come north. And so when you're okay. doing this for an extended period of time, you have to deal with things like weather, right? Weather is a big thing because you're going to be living outside. You're going to be cooking outside. And it doesn't matter if it's raining, hailing, hot, windy, cold, you, you're outside. And so we're like reptiles. We regulate our own body temperature. If it's too hot, we go down in elevation. If it's too cold, we climb up or too hot, we climb up in elevation. If it's too cold, we go down in elevation and we look for that sweet spot where we can be fairly comfortable outside, wherever that may be. Because people think you live in the Jeep. No, we drive the Jeep and we sleep in the Jeep, but we live outside the Jeep. Yeah. Does that make sense? That's a beautiful way to say it. That's beautiful. Um, that made me think of a question, another question. So I think a lot of people are uh, aspiring to do what you guys are doing. They want to do a long-term overland trip and maybe what the, the process that they're in right now is either planning the route or um, looking at vehicles, deciding whether or not they are taking a single vehicle or pulling a trailer or whatever. Um, you're not pulling a trailer. So you're once you set up camp, like that's home. And I know what a pain in the rear it is to set up and take down, set up, take down. So how do you, what does that look like for you guys on the daily? Maybe not on the daily, but like 
once you're set up, you're up. Your food is purchased. Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I mean, we take taxis a lot of the times. Like here, we're taking taxis around town or we're taking Ubers, which are available through Latin America a lot. Tuk tuk. Yeah, we're a tuk tuk, depending on okay. what they are. Absolutely. And that keeps us from having to break down our home anytime okay. we want to go do something fun. If we're, for example, on Lake Atiflan in Guatemala, it is one of my all time favorite camping spots of this trip. And we had this beautiful site right on the lake and in the Jeep stayed there. We were there, what, a week or so? And we would just catch tuk-tuks into town and then take the water taxis across the lake to the various villages. And it worked perfectly. Now, having said that, I want to add that we have been very intentional about our build. And Dotless, our vehicle, from parking him to being fully set up, tent is up, awning is out, chairs are out, two minutes. Wow. It, it's, it's almost like a fire drill. We could have the whole thing set up in about two minutes, including the awning, the tent, and our chairs. That's um, stuff, stowing takes a little bit longer, but not really that much longer, depending on how much we take out. But if, if we've already put everything away inside the Jeep and all we're doing is closing the tent and the awning and putting away our chairs, you're talking about five minutes and we're back on the road. So when we built Dauntless, we built him with this in mind. We wanted quick deployment of our campsite, quick stowage of our campsite. Those were part of the criteria for our design on our build for our Jeep Gladiator. You know, we recently hit 300 nights in our Jeep with the Alucab Canopy Camper. So at this point, Eric and I know exactly what each of us is doing. We don't even have to talk. It's just like muscle memory, setting up and packing away. And we've actually done that. We, especially on days when it's either really cold or raining or something like that, we just kind of go through the motions and get it done. And we're done in minutes ready to go. That's awesome. I think that is, um, I don't know why your answer about the tech techs and the taxis and Ubers, I don't know why that was surprising to me, but I feel like if I was planning a trip like this, that's information that would be so valuable to to know. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, I'm sorry, Brittany, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead, Jenny. It's good. Oh, I was just going to say, it reminds me of sailing culture, like traveling around the world and, you know, coming to a port. And you more import and then you rely on all the things you're describing, whether it's a water taxi or a tuk-tuk or Uber you know, to get you around the port city um, in between goes. And so, um, you know, it's I, I guess it sounds like some of the places you're traveling in Latin America are more like that kind of form of, of traveling around and getting around a city or is more available maybe than in the U S in some places. Like, do you like to go right from your campsite and are not? There definitely are not as many huge tracts of wild spaces and certainly not public land. If it's wild spaces, it's usually owned by somebody. Sometimes it's a national park that maybe you can camp in or maybe you can't. And so that is very unique to the United States, just having those wide swaths of land that we like to go out in and get lost. Especially traveling with Caspian, a lot of times we're trying to find a place that's gated to sleep for the night. It's just something that we feel more comfortable with. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we're in the middle of a city. I mean, we could be on the outskirts of a town or on a long road and there's a restaurant there. And a lot of the restaurants down here do have gates for their own security. And so we'll go eat dinner there and then we'll say, hey, would you mind if we spent the night here tonight? And more than nine times out of 10, they'll say yes. I would love to do a 
detailed podcast sometime on camping throughout Latin America and get into the weeds on public lands versus private lands and gated security and, mm-hmm. you know, what that really looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, cause there's, I, I think that that's certainly a big question I've had about traveling in that part of the world, mm-hmm. uh, that I don't feel has fully been explored. So that, that would be a, yeah, useful topic. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is personal preference because there are so many people that we know who honestly don't love to be around people or camp around people. And so they normally will never seek out a city or a town for camping. They will try to be out somewhere on their own. We enjoy being in these centers. That's how we're getting to know the culture. We like eating out as part of our cultural experience as well. It's quite inexpensive Um, especially when you eat meat. I mean, if you're going to the store and buying meat, the chances are that you can get a meal for the same price at a restaurant. And so that's just our personal preference. And also we've designed this life to be sustainable for us. And so we talked about ways to keep the Jeep set up for longer by taking taxis and tuk-tuks. Well, we're in an Airbnb right now. And, And that's part of our model too. We purposely picked a vehicle so that we would be debt free on this trip. So we could not afford an expedition camper, even if we wanted that, we would have been in debt for years. So instead we got a smaller vehicle, which allowed us to have some room in the monthly budget so that we can get an Airbnb for a little while and really spread out, have walls, which are really important psychologically sometimes to have walls around you, the hot water, the washing machine, and some of those things just to rejuvenate us so that we can get back on the road in a good place. So that brings me back around to a question that I would love to ask you too. Um, you know, when you were describing the differences between, you know, more conventional approaches to travel, like, you know, someone like Lee or I saying, yeah, you know, we're, we're setting out from our home. We have a destination in mind, or at least a, like a period of time you know, there's this sense of adventure and here we go. And the challenge might be to make it to a campsite for the night as you were putting it, Eric. Right. Um, whereas in your case, right, you're, you're, you're camping to travel, uh, rather than trying to make it to some specific place right away. It's a whole different framework, like full-time lifestyle overlanding. And you were touching on some of the challenges and Lee and I were touching on some of the challenges we face on these like specific adventure trips um, that have a very defined timeline. So my question is what I'm wondering is, even though it sounds amazing, right? Like, oh, we're just going to the horizon and we're going to go south. I would imagine there's some mental and emotional challenges in particular to having that lack of structure, right? Like I think a lot of people just like that defined target on the map. It makes them feel more secure even. For you guys, like really being all in on this lifestyle, what are the challenges there and how have you addressed some of that? Well, I'm going to let Brittany touch on this a little bit more because she mentioned something about stability versus instability. There is a lot of instability in our life. There's so much unknown. And this is something that Brittany specifically has struggled with, um, admittedly herself, is the instability that we have. And um, that. so I, I just think that this is something that Brittany can really attach to. I would say that for me, you know, and, and share about. For me, 
I'm not as worried about that. My concerns are more the safety and security of my family in general. And so when I'm driving towards the horizon, I want to know certain things. I want to know like how far do we plan to go today? Are there any landslides on our way there? What is the terrain like? Are there any overlanders that I can talk to that have recently driven this route? Is there anything in the news that precludes me from taking this route? So I'm kind of focused on that. But gosh, for Brittany, she she runs our home, right? I mean, she does all of the taking care of us and getting the meals and getting everything, you know, all of the logistics of the entire journey. And there's just no stability. Like if you don't know where you're going, how can you plan anything? Yeah, I think Eric definitely feels the weight of responsibility for our family and that rests really heavily on him in a way that maybe it doesn't so much for me. Um, I think he allows me to be a little bit more free spirited sometimes because he's taken that weight on himself. I have changed a lot over our 10 years of travel. When we first started traveling, and granted, we were working 40 plus hour weeks and we were working on the internet. So we needed that infrastructure around us. But we we were planning our camping spots six months in advance. And we were still staying at campgrounds for the most part where we could have all of our amenities around us. And that's what we felt comfortable with was six months plan to a T, we know exactly where we're going to stay. And now we have to make a point of the night before asking each other, so where are we going tomorrow? <laughs> because if we're not intentional about it, we'll just go to sleep that night and wake up having no idea where we're going. Um, and I, I have changed to where it doesn't bother me the way that it used to, but it is really hard sometimes, especially from a cooking standpoint. Um, the times that I am trying to actually cook for my family at camp, I have my list of ingredients that I need for my meals, but I've never been to this grocery store before. And so I'm doing my best to look on my phone, find the biggest one, maybe one with a picture or two, which kind of gives me some idea. But then I get there and there's like a random fruit and a random vegetable. The meat cooler has stuff in it that was not what I was looking for. It's all mozzarella cheese, which a lot of times it's the only cheese that you can find. And I just come out of the store with like a nut, like I can't make a meal out of this. Like, what do I do? Um, and Eric is actually on keto. So he's on the keto diet too. And so a lot of overlanders, their staple is pasta. And pasta yep. is like the base of every single meal. Eric can't eat pasta on his diet. And so that's something else that makes it a little bit more challenging. That is really, really rough. I, uh, I, I can just imagine like going to the store and be like, I, like, where's the peanut butter and jelly? So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of sharp cheddar cheese, right? And you can't find it down here. It's extremely difficult to find it. But we did find a little shop here in Cuenca that sells it. This tiny little seven ounce block of Tillamook sharp cheddar cheese, $45. Oh my word. I was just thinking of a cheddar yeah, cheese just not, floating not out kidding. of the fridge and, you know, whatever. And like, like going to the grocery store here in Bozeman, one of six, you know, and it's just endless cheese I, of all kinds, not to mention the yeah. boutique shops. I like, feel so spoiled right what? now. And I, and then the, the, we're going full circle <laughs> to our conversation earlier about like what restaurants do you wanted to go to when you came to UAH? Yeah, I feel, but you know, here's the thing, like, you you had mentioned in, in in our conversations before the podcast, Jimmy, the difference between domestic overlanding 
and international overlap. And they couldn't be any more different than you could possibly imagine. They're, it, it's two different animals. I will say that for domestic overlanding, there are two words that come to mind now with the experience that we have having been down here and having returned home. And that is accessibility and availability, right? So those are two different terms, meaning I have access to a um, like a tool store here, right? I can go buy tools. You have access to Home Depot, right? I don't have that. I and Lowe's right across the street. Right. I have access to a tool store. So even though I have access, I don't have the availability of the items. And in the States, for example, when we were in the States and overlanding full-time in the States, if I needed something, I could go online, go on Amazon, have it shipped to an Amazon locker in the town that I was going to be going through for lunch the next day, pick it up on my way through town and be on my way. That's accessibility and availability, right? That we don't have down here at all. I can't even get blue cheese dressing, let alone a first world problem, let alone a BF Goodrich KO2 341050, right? <laughs> like I could go to, I, I could drive to discount tire in the States and get one. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. And you put out, got to wait more than a day. Right. That, that doesn't exist here. Right. And so there is no, there's access, but there's not always availability, meaning there, there are tire shops here, but for me to get the brand of tire, the specific tire that I need, that's a whole different story or to get the tool that I need or to get the cheese that I want or to get the, you fill in the blank. It just doesn't exist here. And so that makes it leaps and bounds more challenging, not to mention that if you're not a fluent Spanish speaker, you're trying to navigate all of this in a foreign language with a foreign currency, with people who don't have the same culture and traditions that you have, where when you walk into the store and you say, where's your blue cheese? They're going to look at you like you're the person I've ever seen. <laughs> you didn't say good afternoon to me before you spoke to me. And in Quito, Ecuador, if you're wearing chacos and you're showing your toes, that is also really offensive. So don't do that either. <laughs> Holy fuck, I carry on my motorcycle, so I'd be out of trouble. You know, Brittany touched on this earlier. Like if I walk into a, a convenience store in the United States and I'm like, do you guys have Coke Zero? And the guy's going to be like, yeah, dude, it's in the cooler in the back. And I'm going to go back there. I'm going to get it. And I'm going to make my transaction. I'm going to walk out the door. If you did that exact thing here, you would be, it's like slapping them across the face. Oh, wow. Right? Like the correct way is good afternoon. And then they say, good afternoon. How can I help you? And you say, I was wondering if you have Coke Zero. Yes, it's back there. Well, thank you so much. And that's the full conversation, right? Do you know that here in restaurants, they don't even bring you the bill? Like, like if, if I didn't tell you this, Jimmy and Leah, and let's say you guys were going out on a business trip to Mexico. And you go to a restaurant together and you're talking about your, your podcast schedule for the next year, whatever, right? So you order your food, you're done your food, and you're sitting there looking at the guy like, I wonder if he's going to bring the bill or do I flag him over? He'll never bring it. Never. They will not ever bring you the bill until you ask for it because it's considered extremely rude, like they're kicking you out of their establishment, right? So they won't even bring it to you. You could sit there for three hours at an empty table and they will never bring you the bill until you ask for it. 
Meanwhile, in the United States, you're not even two thirds done your meal. Oh, yeah. and they're putting the bill on your your table. And they're like, "There's no rush. Yeah. What do you know about here? Now, right? So, and and we hit it. It's it's transactional. A lot of our relationships in the United States, domestic overlanding, everything's transactional. And here, it's very relational, right? I mean, international yeah. overlanding, it's extremely relational and and very little to do with transactions. Which would make, I, I would just guess that would be, have something to do with how you find good places to camp and, you know, trails is not, you know, with a transaction as much as like building some relationships, talking to people. And then, yes, there might ultimately be a transaction, but the relational part of it would be very important to finding these gems and places to go and where it's safe and all of that. Yeah, it's not only a better trip, but it's a safer trip too. That's how we find find out about road conditions and instability, and um, and we feel like we've been really fortunate on this trip. We haven't had any incidents like what people would imagine, but a lot of it is how many people we talk to, and I really do think it makes for a different trip that we're not isolating ourselves and trying to do it by ourselves alone but we're looking to the people around us to help us and to tell us about their country and what we need to know so are both you fluent spanish speakers i heard some you speaking spanish in some of the videos but i was kind of wondering that right so i'm half mexican my my mom is from mexico originally and i grew up speaking spanish um so i am fluent in spanish and uh Brittany, i think i'm this close to conversationally (laughs) fluent she's dangerous she understands everything that everyone says around her, and she doesn't look like she can at all. So that makes her uh, nice. But you guys know what? Here in Cuenca, I have officially decided that Caspian is conversationally fluent in Spanish. That was going to be my next question. Really, really excited about that because we found someone to help take care of him for a couple times during the week. So Eric can get some YouTube done. I can get some writing done. She's from Venezuela, but she speaks beautiful English. And so Caspian could speak to her in English if he wanted to, but he's actually gravitating towards speaking in Spanish. And so we're just overhearing them speaking Spanish all day long. And that kid doesn't have any fear. So he doesn't know how to conjugate a verb, whatever. He just says it however he wants to. And that's why he's getting ahead of me because he has no fear. I have fear and I'm self-conscious about it. And so I'm not willing to practice as much as he is. And so, yeah, super recently, I feel like he seriously is getting better at Spanish yeah. than I am. That's awesome. What a cool thing to watch. Um, that bit brings the question to mind, like, what are you guys doing for school for him? Are you on top of everything else you have going on? I assume you're homeschooling. We could spend a whole podcast. Episode. I podcast episodes <laughs> do you want to spend on this topic? I know. Well, we can, when we certainly can dabble in it for a second, I just want to get like a general overview of like what you're doing, because I think I really do think that this is a conversation that we should have a full, full podcast about because it is one of those um, barriers to entry that so many people, like I said, are looking at you guys and saying, this is aspirational. We want to do this, but what the heck are we going to do with our kids? So I, I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So much to say about this. I homeschooled from grades one to 12 before I attended the University of Texas at Austin. And so I have this huge benefit of knowing what a homeschooling education can be like and knowing how you can take it into adulthood. And yeah, and so it gives me that confidence that I'm so thankful to have it. And so I spent 2020, a lot of lockdown defining my philosophy of education 
And I started with the super type A plan of we're going to do a classic education. It's going to be all this structure, the way that the founding fathers did it, all this stuff. But I decided to keep my options open. And so I went down an unschooling rabbit hole. And unschooling is child-led education. It's basically if your kid is interested in the solar system, then let's talk about the solar system and let's bring in what we would consider the traditional subjects. So let's talk about math and distances. Let's talk about geometry. Let's talk about science, obviously, and write and do art and do it around what the child is interested in. And you might think, well, that works super well when he's young, but actually there are models that have been around for decades in the United States where the children have gone through this type of education and they're adults now. And it's a proven form of education uh, that we're really excited about. And it, it works so well with our travels because there's people to learn from and things to learn from every day. That's amazing. That I mean, I mind blown right there again. Um, but I, I, yes, I think we absolutely should have a whole podcast on that because I can just imagine there's a ton of layers to uncover and and things to talk about accessibility availability again just like you were saying um from yeah. libraries to museums oh, totally. and all the things that are there like yeah yeah i'd love to do and a whole podcast on this yeah I've, I've i've written on this a little bit too so we have some articles on our blog ourlistlife.com we have a family travel drop down where people okay. can read our parenting philosophy and more about schooling and I also wrote an article about world schooling for Overland Journal, and it's been republished on Expedition Portal. So if people go to Expedition Portal and search for world schooling, they can see not just Caspian, but a bunch of other families and how they're teaching their children all around the world through Overland Travel. Yeah, for sure. Definitely going in the show notes. And it's got me a little curious, Brittany, about your writing life. Um, you know, I've, I've, I know you're a freelance writer, and so... How, how have your travels impacted that part of your life? And you know, are, there, are there any kind of projects you're working on in the background that might be fun to know about? I had to give up my love for writing for so many years to focus on our different business projects in the United States. And I was editing for a long time. We had a blog. I had writers back in Austin and all I got to do was edit their stuff. And it was like saying goodbye to a dream until we burnt down all those projects to build up this new life, this hourless life where Eric knew how important writing was to me. And it now has become a huge priority. And um, I love, yeah, I just meet so many people, first of all. So when I write, I'm not even writing about us all the time. I could, but it's so much fun to share what other people are doing. And we meet so many amazing people who don't have an online presence or have a very small online presence. And I love sharing about them specifically. Um, I'm also working, I'm developing a new series that has to do with different ecosystems around the world and what we as travelers can do very practically to help protect those ecosystems and not have this idea of, well, it's not my country, they're messing it up, but I'm just passing through, so it's not my responsibility. Mm -hmm. But instead, viewing the world as a system where all the rivers flow into the oceans and there's no borders, it is all interconnected. So how can we take more responsibility and be ethical travelers in that way? 
I've heard some other, you know, people talking about that. It, it's, it feels to me like that's a growing movement in the overlanding space that will be worthy of a podcast discussion at some point. And it's kind of like overlanding activism, like traveling with purpose and seeing things and, you know, working as an overlanding community to create change in different parts of the world, mm-hmm. uh, protect ecosystems like you're talking about, Brittany. And I, I just can't imagine any better way than experience it all firsthand on yeah, extended basis to really, like you said, you know, realize how things are interconnected rather than they're over here and we're here. It's impossible to appreciate without seeing it. And I feel so blessed to be able to see it. And so I feel a huge responsibility to share those things that I had no idea about before I was here. Well, there's so many things to talk about with you guys, and we've covered so much already tonight, including getting a look at your backstory, your life, how you got to where you're at. So uh, I, I hope that you'll be willing to get back on the podcast with us so we can get into the weeds on some of these topics. I, I think listeners will find your insight and knowledge tremendously helpful. Uh, even if they don't intend to do international travel, there are things to learn from what you all do that can even apply to weekend warriors and people going out for a weekend Moab. So um, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And before we say goodbye, could you fill people in and fill us in on, you know, kind of where you're at right now and what's next and some of the big picture stuff as, as so we, we know like what that looks like a little bit. Sure, Jimmy. So right now we are in Cuenca, Ecuador, which is the third largest city in Ecuador. Um, We are going to be crossing the border into Peru, which is the next country to the south, on or about August 20th. Um, So we'll be here in Cuenca until about the 16th, and then we'll take about four days to make the eight and a half hour drive south. Again, taking our time, allowing that time to get there and make the border crossing. And then we're going to make our way through Peru. There's really two main routes. You can either take the coastal route or you can take the mountain route and both come with their own set of challenges. And we have not decided. It's still something that Brittany and I are wrestling with and deciding, you know, what route we want to take. Um, Ultimately we'll either end up in Lima or in Cusco, uh, one of those two cities. And our hope is to leave Dauntless there uh, and suspend our temporary import permit, fly back to the United States to uh, have Christmas uh, this year with, Brittany's side of the family. Uh, so we're really excited about that. So if things go well, we'll be in the U.S. sometime between October, mid-October to about early January. And then we'll fly back to Peru and continue our drive south. So yeah. that's kind of where we're at. And zooming out on the globe, once we get to the bottom of South America, we're planning to go back to Brazil, ship out of uh, Uruguay to Africa. And then depending on the geopolitical situation, we are hoping to go up the length of Africa to Europe, drive across Asia, and end in Australia. And then back to the- just a few, just a few small plans. Yeah, just a few more steps. But that are we're almost done. That's a ten <laughs> to fifteen year journey, right? So, right. Again, if Thank it's you. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. <laughs> we're talking the Caspian will be somewhere between sixteen and eighteen years old when we're done with this trip, if all things go well. I. I'm just absolutely, I'm, I'm just in awe. I just think you guys are the, just the coolest. The hell? Just the coolest. <laughs> Agreed, Leah. I, I'm speechless. Um, 
and just so grateful for you all spending some time with us on the podcast tonight. Thank you. Oh, it's well, with pleasure. Thank you guys. And a shout out to the entire crew at X Overland. You guys have been instrumental in shaping our dreams. Uh, when we were getting ready to start this journey, we were binge watching everything that XO had put out there and just like drinking from a fire hose and learning so much. And we've, we've been blessed to become friends with, with Clay and Rochelle. And actually we're carrying Clay's camera inside Dallas, the one he used to film Greenland. Yeah, evidently Scott Brady used it to film Greenland. Yeah, so he, wow. That expedition. Clay, hand, and we don't really, but he, had, but he handed it to us and said, take this on your trip, you know? So uh, just the support of XO over the years and the, uh, you know, the inspiration uh, and education that we received. So we want to say thank you to the XO team as well, because you've been instrumental in shaping us as well. So. Um, can you tell, tell our listeners where they can follow your adventures at? We are Hourless Life everywhere. So hourlesslife.com. We're on YouTube. We release a video every other Sunday. Instagram, we have a really active presence. That's kind of where I share a lot of my thoughts. And then we have a Patreon as well, which is our behind the scenes. This was the bad day we just had. This was the huge victory we just had. That's our community on the road because we don't have a constant community outside of yeah, and just to share very briefly on that, Patreon is very important to us, extremely important to us, and it's not even financially. Like, you got to understand, like Brittany just said, we don't have that friend that we can call up and say, hey, Jimmy, right. I had a rough week. You know, do you want to go grab a pizza and and, and hang right. out for a little bit? Or, or hey, Leo, we've, we're having a barbecue over at the house. Do you want to come over? Like, that doesn't exist in our world because everyone we ever meet, we say goodbye to. Right. And we've, we've made great friends along this journey, but we're always saying goodbye and we're always heading further away. And right. so Patreon fills that void for us. They are our consistent community, country after country, continent after continent that we can really share and be real with. And they've invested in us and we invest back in them. And man, they, they've just been so uplifting in the, in the difficult days and they help us celebrate the great days. Right. And so they are that community for us. And so, um, I think sometimes people think, oh, they have a Patreon, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's like, <laughs> dude, we didn't even want to have one. Like we, we talked about it for a long time. I, I didn't want to have one. He's the extrovert. So he was the yeah. one who did it. <laughs> and, uh, but, but it's been a huge blessing to us, like a huge, huge blessing to us. And so just having those same people in our corner, country after country, that have known what we've been through has made all the difference in this journey. Yeah. I can imagine that. I can imagine. I had a conversation recently with somebody. We were talking about people who are willing to pick up and do a trip like this and what they give up because the community that we have and like, and I've talked about this too, like, I, I do I want to get up, pack up and move to another city, another state, whatever. Um, and what, what, what I would give up after living in just one city for you know, 15 years. And, um, and that is a huge thing and you're willing to do it, but you're also, you're gaining so much. Um, and it's just a matter of, you got to pick your priorities. So. Yeah. And the funny thing is, here's the deal. A lot of people would tell us all the time, like when we're, they find out we're flying back to the States. Oh my gosh, we want to buy you dinner. We want to take you here. Like we found out you're driving through here. It's like, dude, for five bucks a month, you could talk to us like this every single day. Like if you'd be willing to buy us a cup of coffee, like sign up on our Patreon and get to know us. You know what I'm saying? Because I think that this community is so beneficial to us and our patrons will be the first to tell you that they receive a lot back because we're sharing with them stuff that that even the listeners here will never find out about simply because 
it's so personal and so real. real talk. You know, it's a yeah. space for that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, like you're I saying, like you you created that to have authentic community for yourselves. Like you answered one of my earlier questions, right? How do you deal with the endless horizon? Well, here's one way a tool you found in is Patreon as a way to build real community and how it's about so much more than the money. It's it's a, a, a much sounds like more effective place to build an online community that you can really connect with. So it makes a lot of sense to me. Well, thanks again, you two, for being on and already can't wait to talk to you next time. Uh, Leah and I will be following your travels. And thanks, everyone, for listening tonight. Uh, we appreciate you being here on the X Overland podcast. We'll catch you next time. Ciao. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. That really helps. The video version of this episode and of all episodes of the X Overland podcast are exclusively available at the X Overland Network. Head to xoverland.com to subscribe to the network and for access to all of X Overland's premium content. We appreciate your support, and until next time, stay adventurous.